0: Holocaust survivors didn't want to talk about it. I mean, I grew up in, in Queens, New York, and um, a lot of my friends' grandparents had numbers on their arms. And it was just acknowledged but never talked about. So I think this little piece of the experience isn't something people want to talk about.
1: Welcome to Historical Fiction Unpacked. I'm your host, Allison Treat. Hello readers and welcome back to the show. This is episode five of season seven. And today I'm sharing a conversation I had with Dean Sycon about his novel, which released last summer. Just like last week, this is another longer conversation, a longer episode, but you guys are going to want to listen to the end because Dean is giving away his book and information, details on how to enter that giveaway are at the end of the show. But let me tell you, that's not the only reason you'll want to listen to the end. I mean, this conversation is great. Dean was very interesting, had so much information to share, and his book is amazing. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Dean Sycon. Dean, thank you so much for joining me on the show today.
0: It is such a pleasure, Alison. Thank you.
1: Great! Your debut novel, *Finding Home*, released last summer. Can you tell me about this book?
0: Yeah, uh, *Finding Home* is this is quite unknown story of Jewish concentration camp survivors trying to return to their hometowns immediately after liberation. I stumbled across the story when doing research for something different and when i read about what happened to these poor people who had been in concentration camps for 1 to 3 4 years upon trying to return to their homes i was i was stunned and then the more research i did i realized it wasn't a one off episode this was happening all over eastern europe and russia and i thought i'm a historian i'm an international business guy. I'm a traveler. How could I not know about this? Mm. And everybody I spoke to said, oh yeah, I knew about that. But when I press them, they say, oh my God, I didn't know about that. So I thought this is an important story that has to come out because it's not only relevant to the Jewish post-war experience, but it's relevant to any outcast community, any immigrant group, any group that's othered trying to find a home.
1: Right. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, I have to say that your prose is stunning. I told you in the, before we started recording how much I am enjoying the book. Um, And I just think it's so good. I also, as you mentioned, I feel like it's a very important book. So, you said kind of what was your inspiration, but what, how exactly did you come to weave together these stories? How did you figure out kind of what what shape the plot would take?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. So the way I, th- this is actually my second novel and I'm working on my third and I've I've figured out what works for me in the creation of a historical novel. And the way I do it is I start with the research. So if I have a topic that interests me, for example, the return of Jews to their hometowns after liberation from the camps, I start doing a deep academic dive. Usually I use academia.edu, which is a website where um, professors, researchers from all over the world post their research articles. So if you go on academia.edu and you plug in, you know holocaust or the names of the towns or the countries you can see the hundreds or thousands of papers that no one would ever have access to because they're academic papers right so that to me is my my primary research tool for historical research and then from there as i'm reading in the case in this case i'm starting to read about these different experiences in towns and then I'm reading about trials for example of the perpetrators of the pogroms that happened you know when the Jews tried to return yeah. or testimony of people who had taken the houses all that um I start to get characters and I start to get plots okay. because it's not a history book we need a, we need really interesting characters deep characters and we need a really convincing plot that's got an arc that's going to hold, hold your attention to the very end, you know, right. I mean, the good novel, novel technique, but to do it in the context of a historical novel, I need, I need the information first. So that's what I do. And as I'm reading those testimonies, I say, Oh, that guy would make a great character. The butcher, he came back and nobody wanted him to work in their butcher stores because they, pardon the expression, they called him a dirty Jew. I got that from so many of the testimonies. So now I've got Oscar the butcher, you know, and I I need to make his trajectory. And then I read stories about people who lost their families in the camps and then they come back and they go to their apartment. Not only is the apartment taken over by somebody else, but they've thrown out all his stuff. So now he or she doesn't have photographs, doesn't have clothing, doesn't have any memorabilia of their family life. Their family has been erased. So that to me, as profoundly disturbing as it is and how it's important to get it out to people, how can I make that in a fictional way that's going to capture people's attention? So, you know, I know we're going to talk about this, but basically I like to write historical fiction because I did grow up in a sense in academia and as a lawyer, as an advocate in a very fact based world. But I also know that people are less likely to read political books or history books unless they already know something about it or agree with the basic premise. But if you put something in a novel and it's well written, anybody's going to read it and then they're more likely to get what you're trying to get to them. I have, I have bookshelves full. Of novels that I buy, and I'm sorry, history books, political books that I buy for the title, and then I never open them. Right. I say that my my bookshelf is the healthiest bookshelf in the world because there's not a there's not a broken spine in the whole place. <laughs> but as a, you know, but as a but as a but as historical fiction, if it's compelling, as I say, anybody's going to read it. And interestingly enough, I thought that the primary cohort for this novel was going to be Jewish readers. And okay. I found it's it's not about 85% of the people who buy the book are not Jewish. It's oh. just people are really interested in the way I've posited the subject matter. You know, a lot of interest in World War II and Holocaust material. But since nobody's written a book that tells the experience of the survivors coming back, right. it's really taken off and people are really Getting that information that I want them to get.
1: Yeah, it's just so amazing that it hasn't been done before, actually. (laughs) I'm kind of like, how?
0: So, you know, a lot of people have asked me that. How come nobody knows about this? Right. And I think there are several reasons. One is anybody who's writing a book about the post Holocaust basically skips from the camp and liberation. The next chapter is. Palestine, Great Britain, America. They go Mm. right to the following story. They don't look at that interregnum about what happened when people got out. So that's the first thing. They go to the more exciting story about how they continued their life later on. But also, at the time, right after World War II, there was massive movements of populations. The Czechs kicked out 100,000 Germans the Poles kicked out 100,000 Germans. Mm-hmm. Everybody was kicking out these ethnic populations that they wanted to get rid of. So in all that movement, which some say is still the largest migration of people in history was after World War II, mm-hmm. the story of tens of thousands of, of surviving Jews gets lost. Yeah. People had yeah. bigger fish to fry. You know, They weren't that interested in, in the Jewish story at that point. So I think that's one of the reasons that it also got lost. And the third reason is that the Holocaust survivors didn't want to talk about it. I mean, I grew up in in Queens, New York, and um, a lot of my friend's grandparents had numbers on their arms, and it was just acknowledged but never talked about. So I think this little piece of the experience isn't something people want to talk about. Having said that, when my book came out, uh, I was deluged with emails from people who said, wow, that was my grandmother's experience. She wow. went back with her mother to her house. And when the door opened, a little girl was wearing her clothing.
1: Oh my goodness. That was
0: my grandmother's experience. I got that from so many people yeah. and, and they were so happy that it was coming out. And I, and I said to each one, I hope that I'm honoring your family's experience with this. You know, it's not my experience but I hope I'm honoring yours, and people universally were were thankful that it came out and happy the way it came out.
1: Right, and I'm gathering from this, you are not Jewish, is that right? I am. Oh, you are. I'm yeah. sorry, I shouldn't assume.
0: No, no, um, no, no, no. no. I, you know, I, I'm culturally Jewish. I'm not religiously <laughs> <just> Jewish. <laughs> but yeah, you know, my my. It's interesting because the 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 historical novels I'm writing weren't about being Jewish, but some of the things that drew me the deepest in my heart were these stories and a few more I've got planned coming up. Okay. You know, I, I I have 10 other ones lined up that are not (laughs) on Jewish themes.
1: That's so is how much of a part did your own heritage play in what you wanted to find out?
0: That's It's interesting. What, where my heritage comes in, my my family left Eastern Europe in the pogroms of the early 1900s. Okay. They were in Poland and Belarus, in
1: mm-hmm.
0: Pinsk. So they, they came here before. Who was left were totally destroyed. So right. we, we don't even know what's over there now because the people were murdered and the records were destroyed. So there's just no way of knowing. Wow. So there's that. I have an inherent, you know, connection to obviously the Holocaust, right, by the fact of being Jewish. But um, the other part is, you know, and this is particular of American Jews. You know, many of us have sort of this ambivalent relationship with Judaism, not being Jewish, but the, the religion, or you know, how much of the culture you want to embrace. And as I was doing the research, I found that in Hungary in particular, because the Jews there were so part of the culture, they were so acculturated, they were so assimilated Mm -hmm. that it was much more like American Jews than, say, Jews in Poland or Germany at that time. And that's one of the reasons I put the book in Hungary, because Hungary, in Hungary, the Jews basically thought it can't happen here. Even late into the war, even yeah. with all the negative Jewish laws prohibiting their going to universities and and being in certain professions, very draconian laws um, that actually the Germans then modeled their laws on the Hungarian laws. Even so, the Jews felt safe; they weren't being deported, they weren't being put in camps. So, as rough as the experience was around them in World War II, the Jews of Hungary felt that they kind of weren't going to be targeted like that. And then in late mid-1944, already the Russians were inside Hungary. It looked like the war was going to be lost. At, at the middle of 1944, so close to the end of the war, Hitler sent um, Adolf Eichmann into Budapest to arrange for the mass deportation of Jews. And in eight weeks, he got over 500,000 Jews transported out and into camps. It's just outrageous at a time when the war was ending. Right. And, 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 and the Jews just didn't believe it was happening to them because they were assimilated. Yeah. And that's why I I really chose to put it in Hungary because that's where it's more relevant to today. Because here, you know, we had the tree of life synagogue shooting, the Charlottesville March, so much anti-Semitism, especially now around the Israel Gaza
1: situation. Yeah.
0: You know, so Jews in America are waking up and going, "Whoa, it, it can't happen here, but something is happening here." right?" And so, the experience of the Jews of Hungary in my book is really, really relevant to today. And I wanted to I wanted to show that from both the Jews' point of view and and, and my ambivalence about where I stand in Judaism is reflected in some of the characters. So, you know, mm-hmm. you always write what you know in one sense, right? Yes. I managed to get myself in the book. It wasn't <laughs> the intention, but that's what happened.
1: You kind of can't help and it. The other,
0: yeah. And the other piece of it is um, so many of the uh, things that are happening today here, you know, people people really need to wake up to and say, wow, in a historical context, have we seen this before is this headed somewhere, or is this some weird little experience that's happening because of Israel-Gaza right mm-hmm. now? So people have to think about that.
1: Yes, for sure. Um, so I noticed in the beginning you dedicated this book to Jack Terry. Can you tell me who he was and about yeah, his story?
0: Jack Terry was a um, a survivor of three different concentration camps. He was a young boy of 11 in a village in Poland, and the Nazis came in, took the entire village, murdered half of them on the spot, including his parents. And then Jack was sent to a concentration camp, and he stayed in concentration camps till he was 15. Wow. Where he was ultimately liberated by American soldiers, and they felt so bad for this little kid, basically, who'd grown up, you know, his, his preteen and early teen years in a camp with no family. Yeah. So they basically illegally smuggled him into America
1: mm. and,
0: and, you know, the family, somebody adopted him and he grew up here. Okay. So I met Jack when he was 90 in New York City, spry, intelligent. Somebody said, oh, Jack, this is Dean. Dean's writing a book about the Holocaust. Dean, Jack was in three separate concentration camps. And I just felt, I I, I just felt self-conscious and terrible. Mm -hmm. And I said, Jack, uh, you know, I'm sorry. I hope what I'm doing is okay for you. I'd really like you to read what I'm doing and I'd love your input. And he said, absolutely. So Jack became my beta reader in one sense of, of this. And Jack is interesting. He ultimately became a psychoanalyst And a psychiatrist specializing in war trauma specifically for Holocaust survivors. Wow. And he became internationally renowned for his work. And so when I met him, he was semi retired in his early 90s, still seeing people. Wow. And and well respected. And so we would have these conversations and he would just go at me um, in a loving way, but he'd say, So why are you writing this book? You know, and what does that character mean to you, and you know, and everything I gave him wasn't enough. He'd say, "Go deeper." Oh, wow. I felt like I was on the couch, you know, so <laughs> Jack is responsible for a lot of the depth that's in this book, and I also felt I had Jack's blessing, you know to write the book right because of the way he was involved, and then Jack passed away right before the book came out, ah. Uh. <sighs> Yeah, he passed away in Germany. He was going there to, to commemorate the 50th anniversary of um, of the um, the Munich massacre of the um, uh, uh, Jewish uh, Olympians. Oh, and wow. he worked with the families of the massacred athletes as okay. a psychoanalyst. But every couple of years, he goes back. He's invited to speak at the commemoration, and he got there, and he just it was COVID and he got very ill and passed away in Germany. Mm. So I was blessed that I wanted to speak to him. I tried to, you know, he's in a hospital in Germany somewhere. I tried to call him. and I couldn't find him. And I, I threw somebody who knew his family there. I said, please, I, I know he doesn't want to talk to anybody right now, but I, I really want to talk to him. Please ask him if it's okay for me to call him. And an hour later, he called me. Oh my goodness. Yeah, he called me from his hospital bed. And I told wow. him, the book's coming out, and it's dedicated to you, Jack. And it was uh, a hard but beautiful moment. Wow. It's, and that's t- why the book is dedicated to Jack.
1: Yeah, understandably. Yeah, that's yeah. great. I don't know if you mentioned much about who, so far, she feels like the lead character. Um, Ava. Oh, I forget. Ava. Mm-hmm. And what is her last name? Fleiss.
0: Eva Fleiss. Fleiss it would be be in in Hungarian. Okay. You say Eva Fleiss, right? But it's Eva Fleiss. Eva (laughs) Fleiss,
1: yeah. And she is a pianist. So she dealt with a lot of the horrors she saw at Auschwitz by playing, just playing the piano in her head. I mean, with her fingers in her head. Correct. Yeah. Because there was no piano. Um, So I'm just curious about the role that music plays in this book and whether music has a big role in your life, how you came to incorporate this?
0: I read a lot about music in the camps. In fact, tonight I'm going to a concert, uh, the music of Terezin, which Mm. was a a model camp that the Nazis set up to fool the world about the treatment of Jews inside these camps. Um, They had a model orchestra and one of my characters is sent to Terezin. Uh, It's, it's Ava's professor. Yes. Music. Music. You know, music has a, a power, for, a transformative power for either good or for evil. And I I wanted that theme to be in the book because I had read about it in so many of the survivors accounts that music played a part in either um, defeating them, their souls in the camps because of the mockery that the Nazis used music to pretend like everything was okay. As people were getting off the trains, they'd play Upbeat music, and 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 also uh, music is also not only the Nazis used it obviously, but music is always used as a triumphal source for people to to rally them. And so right. I wanted to, I wanted to look at the theme of music in the camps and music in survivors' lives. And so that's why Ava uh, was a musician. Now I have a daughter who's a professional musician and she lives in spain and she was also my beta reader for oh. both the a, a young woman's interior landscape mm-hmm. uh especially around trauma and also was i getting the music right
1: you know was oh, i was, was that
0: an experience i was translating onto the page and so she was really essential in putting together the book
1: yeah this brings up something interesting that I don't feel this has come up with many other authors, but the importance of beta readers. Um and for listeners who don't know, I mean obviously that's the first people who read a book. Did you only have two or did you have more?
0: No, I had my daughter. I had my wife who's a trauma therapist. Okay. Among other things. Um I had Jack. Yeah. Holocaust survivor. I had um A a couple of uh, people who are psychologists here and Mm. also people who are uh, deeply Jewish. And so I really tried to cover the landscape of the, the themes and the plot with people who would have a good take on it. I did have a couple of other Holocaust survivors that I interviewed and that I gave parts of the book to read. Okay. Uh, I really believe in the importance of beta readers. Yes. Um, not because, you know, they're going to tell you to make your book better, because the role of a beta reader isn't to tell you that they would prefer the plot to do this or to do that. Right. But rather the insight you get from someone who's seen the book uh, through their lens. But if If you get them specifically targeted to what you're looking for, that makes a beta reader effective. I think a lot of people f- use beta readers because you can get them online, you know
1: right.
0: A lot of people use beta readers, but don't give them direction.
1: Mm-hmm. And so
0: if that's the case, you're not going to get anything more than someone who goes, "Wow, I really liked it," or I didn't like it, but i you, you should change this kind of thing. Yes. But if you give beta readers a list of instructions, I'm looking for you to look at the book through this lens and to give me your reflection on this character or the atmosphere. Do you feel like the atmosphere is coming through, that you're sufficiently immersed in the period? You know, if you give people directions, then they can be incredibly helpful.
1: Yes. Yeah. I I found that myself as well. Yeah, and
0: when you get to your either your publisher or if you're self-publishing if you hire uh an editor which you really should yes. everybody <laughs> out there one way or the other they're right. going to take another round at it obviously but you know the truth is every editor has their own bias. Yes. I took, I took this book to a professional editor who had retired from Random House and she basically said get rid of half the characters and you know make oh. it all from Eva's point of view and I said I'm not writing that kind of book. I get it. That would be a popular book, especially in today's marketplace, but that's not the book I'm writing. Mm -hmm. You know, I needed to have, I needed to have the points of view, not only of Ava and some of the other Jews as specific points of view, but I needed the points of view of the townspeople because nobody's ever done that, you know, and this is an important part of the book. Everybody assumes that, you know, Anybody who was German or anybody who was in those towns and took the Jews' property were evil monsters and had no reason for doing it. And it's like, we're never going to understand people's motives if that's how we perceive them. All of these people in these towns had their reasons for doing what they did. As one person pointed out at my very first book launch, they weren't good reasons. I said, that's okay. That's okay. That's for us to judge for sure. Right. But in their mind, it was their reasons. And I needed to know what those reasons were. And that's where the research came in because speaking to Eastern European academics who helped me translate trial transcripts and just looking at what, you know, people who had looked at the townspeople's and the government officials' points of view here, that gave me insight into something I found nowhere else. And I was able to, to to represent that. And one of the comments I keep getting on the book is that I did such a, a good job on balancing the Jews' perspective, which is obvious, you know, in one sense, right. and then the townspeople's perspe- perspectives, which are not obvious. Some right. people felt terrible guilt and gave back property. Some people denied that they had anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Some people were ardent Nazis and were happy to. Shove the Jews onto the deportation train. And some people had never had anything in their lives. And when they got those apartments and those paintings and those clothings, they didn't want to give them up. Sure. So, you know, there's such a range of, of points of view out there in the townspeople that nobody knows about. And that's what was important to me to bring out in the novel.
1: Yeah. And I think that is part of what makes it important is that we may see our own attitudes in exactly the attitudes of the, the townspeople yeah. yeah
0: yeah well and you know that's such a good point because when I was when I was giving uh, a talk uh, at a synagogue someone said to me you know well I would never you know I, I would never act in such a way and I said, well you know it's a funny thing I said uh, you know we're talking about like with the townspeople we're talking about bystanders. Mm-hmm. enablers yeah or resistors you mm-hmm. know and most people were bystanders so they kind of watched what happened and didn't take part and then and pe- some of the people in the audience says there is no such thing as a bystander I said okay well haven't you ever been a bystander I said I have you know yeah. I'm my background is uh I'm an indigenous rights lawyer or a human rights lawyer you know a social entrepreneur in the coffee world for 30 years but I'm known for being engaged with with communities in conflict. I'm doing a lot of work in in Ukraine right now Hmm. and voting rights in Georgia. But one time I I got a, a message from someone in the Congo and he said, Dean, you've got to see this little video. And he sent the video to me and it was a man pleading for help, a young guy pleading for help. And he was saying, my village was taken over by rebels and they kicked us out of our houses and then they moved people into our houses we need help please america you've got to come and help us and i sat there and said this is exactly what's going on in my book and oh. look at me i'm thinking about do i help ha- how do i help these people what do i do do i send a 100 bucks to some organization I said, you know, I, I, my head is so full of all the tragedy in the world. Right. You know, I've got a little compassion fatigue. I'm not going to help this guy. Yeah. And then I thought, oh, my God, I'm just like the next door neighbor in my book,
1: you mm-hmm. know? Yeah.
0: So it, it helped me get a little more, mm, maybe not compassion, but insight into why people act the way they do. And right. then compassion. Yeah. And so... I realized, and I said, that I, I said this to the audience, I said, you know, I've been a bystander in my life too. Mm-hmm. You know, as, as much as I do all this activism, you know, I've been a bystander and I have to have some compassion for people who are bystanders or at least some understanding. Right. So it's it's been helpful for me personally to do the research and put the book out. And I'm hoping people will widen their lens to see that, you know, not everybody in the South who has an accent is an enemy, you know, what all the crazy stuff politics yes. puts out these days.
1: Yes, sure. You mentioned your background a little bit. So what made you shift gears from what you were doing and write this novel? Or did you pretty much cover that in the beginning?
0: No. You know, I was thinking about that. I've been a researcher all my life. I've written all my life. When I was 11, I got a medal from Governor Lindsay uh, from Mayor Lindsay in New York City for the best best fire prevention essay in the wow. fifth grade. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. So I've been writing a long time, and yeah. I've had a lot of professional articles published and a few travel articles, but I've always wanted to write a novel, but I never got around to it. Yeah. You know, I've got I've got so many outlined here in my office. I've got files here. Oh, wow. But, um, you know, I was always doing something else. I was a lawyer. I was this. I was that. I was living overseas a couple of times. I never put the focus on it. Then when COVID happened and I was forced to stay home, I had a, uh, an organic fair trade coffee company, which I was very heavily involved in, in, in 10 different countries around the world. Um, I finally had to sit down and quiet down a little bit. So I thought, I'm going to start focusing on some of the novels I've been toying with. And so in early COVID, I started to really get serious about it. And then I just couldn't let go. I was doing eight hours a day, seven days a week. So that's that's when this one finally got uh, put together. Wow. But the, the point of it is I was ready for research. I was ready for writing. And I finally gave myself permission to do it. And then I decided that after 30 years at the helm of Dean's Beans Organic Coffee, it was time to let go. And so I turned Dean's Beans into a worker-owned cooperative last year. Okay. The same month that the book was released. So I sort of, as the man on the flying trapeze, I let go with one hand and I grabbed with the other. <laughs> and I I turned my, my my full attention to writing. Wow. And I thought, okay, this is the next chapter of my life, probably the last.
1: Mm. The next
0: 20 years will be nothing but writing. Yeah. 10, 10, Ten of them outlined and, wow. and working every day.
1: You're just hitting the ground running, taking oh, I'm so all passionate that.
0: About it. Love it so much. Oh, that's great. It's been great. pent up in there, you know. Yeah. So it's yeah. like
1: you're approaching it with the same amount of dedication that you gave to your prior roles. Then.
0: Well, you know, I am who I am. You know, I'm. I'm. I. The energy I have and the focus I have is now, instead of being over there, it's over here.
1: Mm-hmm. It's the
0: same me, right? Right. But I've, <laughs> I've, I've. I've adopted a different path.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I'm curious. Um, how you ended up with the publisher you have did you mm-hmm. did you go the agent route like how how did that all work out?
0: Wow, <laughs> so I'm such a good doobie you know i I watched all the online articles I took a lot of courses, I went to writing workshops i'm gonna do this right, so you know I have giant maps around the room where I plot out. To plot to plot out the themes and the characters, make sure you know conflict gets resolved here, but oh, there's another conflict there. I so did my work. Then I went to 70 agents, not all at once, in 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 tranches of 10, you know, because that's the way to do it, so that when you get something back, you can tweak your query a little bit. Yeah, and I got 70 rejections.
1: Oh my goodness! And
0: I thought, okay, you know, and most most people weren't giving me any feedback. Because that's how it is, you know. Right. They don't respond. If we don't respond, it's because we don't have time. Okay, okay. (laughs) And the ones that did respond were form letters. You know, this is a a good work and I'm sure it's going to find a good home. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's the same letter. What do they have a bot (laughs) doing this? You know, so um, I was getting kind of depressed and I have, uh, I shouldn't say depressed. I was getting disgruntled. But I have some friends. One of them is a New York Times best-selling novelist, wow. and some others of lesser fare. And also because of Dean's Beans, I had a couple of people like uh, I shouldn't mention names. Some some great novelists on there who buy our coffee. So I reached out to them and I said, "Hey, what's going on here?" And um, one one person who has a small publishing company is a, a, a noted literary critic and professor. He said, let me, let me take a look at your manuscript. I, I'll tell you what's going on with the publisher, with the uh, why, you know, What's not clicking? Right. So he read the manuscript and he came back to me two weeks later and said, I can't believe it. I, I didn't know you knew how to write like this. I was like, why didn't you think I knew how to write like this? Because <laughs> you're the coffee guy. You're the social yeah. justice guy. I was like, ah, you put me in the silo. I do the same thing. Right. You know, when I hear about a basketball player who's written a book. It's like, pff, they can't write. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, so leading with, you know, I'm Dean from Dean's Beans. This guy who's gotten all these international awards in my query letter did nothing.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. In
0: fact, it probably prejudiced people against me, you know. Sure. So In any event. So he said he'd pu- he wanted to publish it, but then realized that I had donated to their nonprofit publishing company in the past. You know, he didn't want to make it look like it was. Play to pay, pay to play. So I said, no problem. I want to retain your friendship. I'll right. find a publisher. So then I decided, you know what? This gatekeeper thing isn't working out. And if you don't mind, I'm going to share something that may be a little controversial sounding, but it's my experience. So I want to sure. share this. So it's historical fiction, right? Mm-hmm. So I spent a long time making a list of historical fiction agents. Right. What do you know? Out of 100 historical fiction agents, 95 were women. I said, "Cool. Okay." But then the next deep dive is into who they represent. 95 out of 100 represented women. I believe it. And then I spoke to someone, an older guy who had published uh, several historical novels and now retired, and he said, "Well, Dean, you know, let's be honest, you know, you're you're in your late 60s, you're a first-time author, you're a white male. you
1: mm-hmm.
0: You're not the cohort that people are looking for in the in the historical novel genre right now. Right. And I thought, well, that's outrageous. And it is outrageous. At the same yes. time, I get it. Okay. Right. Yeah. But we're dealing with, and that's fine, you know? Um so I thought, okay, well, I'm just going to have to figure out a different way of approaching this. Uh, the agent thing isn't working out for me. So I I looked up um publishers who were willing to take unagented submissions mm-hmm. and I identified five publishers who I thought took unagented submissions and also published some historical fiction. Okay. You know, I approached all five of them and I got four offers. Wow. Wow. Huh? <laughs> so much for the gatekeepers. Yes. Right?
1: I know. But so,
0: yeah. So it was, it was surprising to me, you know, cause I wasn't, I wasn't really ready to let go of the traditional publishing route through agents because I'm older, and that's what I grew up with in the literary world. You know, sure, you know the big five and agents and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So I I didn't want to self-publish just because it was, you know, it's this is my experience growing up. This is what I wanted to do. So I went to these independent publishers, and I thought, okay, if this doesn't happen, I'll self-publish. So. I chose I chose Kohler Kohler books because of all the ones who off- made me an offer Kohler sent me their their acquisitions editor he sent me a, a two and a half page analysis of my novel which was so right on oh I thought this guy gets my book okay wow I he gets my book so well I want to work with him nice Contacted and I said, If if we're gonna work together, I really want to go with you because you understand what I'm doing with this book. He understood right. the themes. He just got it. And it's been a great relationship. And they've already made me an offer on my next book. So oh, wonderful. Going with them. You know, it is amazing. I think I think the self-publishing revolution and the independent publishing revolution has allowed so many voices to be heard, you know, because the world of writing and 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 the literary world is not limited to people who have mFAs or
1: mm-hmm. you
0: know you know who are literary geniuses. It's everybody's got a voice, and you right. know the the market will decide whether those voices are sellable, but everybody's got a voice, and most people have really interesting stories to tell,
1: okay. So you mentioned that you're working on another book and you already have a contract uh-huh. for it. Can you tell us anything about it?
0: Well, there's actually two. The one that's the one that's um I'm I'm signing the contract today for is called oh, wow. Emissaries. It takes place in the year 1200 and it's it's based on really interesting and odd historical fact. I love that. I like to find these these dusty corners of history and these facts that people don't seem to know about. And basically in the year 1200 Jerusalem had had fallen to Saladin. The Mongols were getting ready to invade Europe. They did about 50 years later. The Mongols Mm -hmm. were getting ready to invade Europe. So the Middle East is exploding. The Chinese are getting ready to (laughs) invade the countries around them. Um, The churches are fighting with each other. The Jews, of course, are being suppressed. So it sounds like it's coming right off the headlines, but it's the year 1200. So what the book is, is it's a geopolitical... Um, religion, uh, commerce, personal story, uh, of two characters, an older monk and a younger merchant who are sent by the Pope out to the unknown East to find a King, Prester John, who people thought lived out somewhere in the East and had hundreds of thousands of soldiers who he said would be given to the Pope to take over Jerusalem again. So the Pope sends out these emissaries to try to find Prester John. And that's historical fact. None mm-hmm. of the emissaries ever came back. They either couldn't get past the Turks, you know, who, had right. taken, who were taking over Byzantium at the moment, or if they did, they never made it down the Silk Road, which was not, you know, which was not a developed thing at the time. Hmm. So my story is that the two of them make it. And who they find is, it's not Prester John, but they find Genghis Khan. Oh. And Genghis Khan is thinking, this is my ticket to go to the West, to invade the West. The other one I'm working on, I just got back from Spain visiting my daughter who just had our first grandchild.
1: Oh, yes, um, that's right. Congratulations. Yay, uh,
0: our musician daughter. Um, we we I spent a couple of days in Cordoba because I'm writing uh, this next novel is about the Spanish Inquisition. And it's about a a young woman, again, who has to figure out a way to get her father and mother out of the Inquisitor's prison because in early 1500s, an Inquisitor was sent to Cordoba who was just insane. He was called the Dark One. He was so bad, and he just thought he saw Jews everywhere, even though there weren't any Jews in Cordoba. There were conversos, though. There were people who were Jews who converted to Catholicism. Okay. And this is, you know, maybe 10 years earlier or 20 years earlier, this guy went after them and was burning them at the stake left and right. Mm. But there was a revolt against him. And that's that's my story, is the story of the revolt through the eyes of this young, this girl, she's 13, because mm. she had to be young enough that she, they couldn't put her in prison. Okay. And you, you had to be 15 to go to prison in the Inquisition. Wow. They had their rules. And so, you know, so through that, I'm looking at the Inquisition again, I'm looking at religion and what's it, what's being a Jew, what is good Catholicism? What does all that mean? I'm looking at the literature at the time and painting. So I'm I'm having a blast and it's going to be a a really deep novel. So the Emissaries is written. I'm in the middle of the research now for the Inquisitor's Apprentice.
1: Okay. (laughs) So i got
0: the next two years cut out for me.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's exciting.
0: Yeah, I love my new path.
1: Yes, so this is a question I ask all my guests: How do you think learning about history through story helps us approach life in the present?
0: You know, there's this um, there's this thing called the seven deadly sins. Yes, and it seems to me that the seven deadly sins haven't changed much since you know the Greek and Roman times, so. I don't think people change. So when people say history repeats itself, I don't think history repeats itself. I just think people never change. People (laughs) are who we are. And sometimes we learn a little something and then a generation later we forget a little something. Yes. And so history doesn't repeat itself. People just keep doing the same thing. Mm -hmm. So I think what we can learn from history is history allows us to sort of decouple from judging ourselves right now, we can look back and say, oh, wow, look what they were doing then. Then you can say, okay, and we're doing it now. So, oh, history is repeating itself. Yeah, maybe, but it's really that we never learned the lesson. So are we going to learn the lesson this time? Right. So I I think that helps put what we do in perspective. History gives us that perspective so that we don't have to judge ourselves too harshly like we're the worst people ever in history. No, we're not. They're the same as everybody else. Yeah. Right. That's what I like about writing historical fiction is as I said earlier, if it's a good story, then people are going to read it for the story. And through the story, they're going to get the message you're trying to get to them, even though you couldn't tell them that message right. in a modern context. Yeah. So that's what I think the value of historical fiction is, at least for me, that's the strategy I
1: I employ. Yeah. Know? I think that's great. Yeah, so we were talking ahead of time about how you are being very generous to my listeners and you're giving them an opportunity to win a free copy of this novel. So, and I believe we said either an audiobook or a paperback copy, That's right? Whichever one mm-hmm. they they prefer. So, we've decided that if listeners will sign up for both your newsletter and my newsletter by this Sunday, um, you'll be entered in a drawing for the free book. You just need to email me to let me know that you've done that. And then we'll, you know, cross check and make sure that you're signed up and then we'll do the drawing that's probably that Monday, next Monday.
0: Shall I mention how to get on my newsletter? Yes,
1: yeah, so I was going, yeah, I will, I was yeah. going to put the links in the show notes, but go ahead and, and explain. Well, basically
0: just go to my, my, my author website, which is that's me com. Right. And there you can sign up for the newsletter. And just to let folks know, you're not going to get deluged with, you know, what are you drinking coffee this morning and all that <laughs> kind of stuff. I only send out something once a month or once every other month right. that, I, that I'm that i working on that I think is particularly interesting to people.
1: Yeah. Well, you won't get deluged from me either, except at the beginning. I send out like a series of introductory emails yeah. and then and then it's only once a month. So for the most part, you know, I'm not going to fill up your inbox because I know how that is.
0: <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to getting your next newsletter.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, this has been a great conversation, Dean. That's also a good way to follow you is to go to your website, right? Do you have other ways to?
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm super active on Facebook. Okay. And that's just Dean, you know, Dean Sycon at Dean Sycon. Okay. Um, again, it's, uh, you know, I, I was in Spain, so I was posting from there, from the Prado, the museum, because they had an exhibit on, a special exhibit on how Jews were pictured in Christian art in the wow. 1500s. And I was like, <laughs> that's what I'm writing about. The, you know, <laughs> that's great. religious art was the social media of the day. That's how, that's how the authorities got the message they wanted to get to people. Yeah. They, they did it in paintings. And so I've been studying that, and they just happened to have this exhibit in Spain when I was going to be there. So that was awesome. So That's I sent great. some pictures from that and just a little write about that. And, you know, things like that. I post right. things I think would be interesting to people, not just random things of the day.
1: Right. Great. That's good. Okay, wonderful. Thank you so much for being with us today. This has been great.
0: Oh, it's been a pleasure, Allison. Thank you so much. If you pardon me saying so, it's been a treat. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I've never heard anyone say that before. I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, not only a great author but funny too. I know you guys enjoyed that conversation with Dean. And as I said, I will put the links in the show notes to enter the giveaway. So I will have Dean's um author page linked and you just go down to the bottom of his website, of his homepage on his website and there is the sign up for his newsletter. It's called Dispatches from Dean, and mine is on my website as well, and I will link to the sign-up for the newsletter. Actually, I always link to the sign-up for my newsletter in the um, show notes, but this time, if you sign up, you get entered in this giveaway, so it's a win-win. Of course, to make sure you get entered in the giveaway, be sure to send me an email. My email address is allison at allisontreat.com. So friends, if you've been listening long at all, you know how to help the show. Follow, um, subscribe, rate, review, and also share this episode with someone who will love it. The show notes can always be found at com slash blog. That's A-L-I-S-O-N-T-R-E-A-T dot com slash B-L-O-G. Now, my friends, I completely agree with what Dean said about kind of being bystanders without meaning to, um, but I still think that this quote from Yehuda Bauer is something to strive for. He said, thou shalt not be a victim, thou shalt not be a perpetrator, but above all, thou shalt not be a bystander. So take that to heart, my friends, and keep reading historical fiction. I will talk to you again next week.